Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome to the Smirconish Podcast for Independent Minds. Retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman has been in the news a great deal this week. He's also the author of a memoir recently released. It's called Here Right Matters, An American Story. It's funny. We had technical issues in connecting with Colonel Vindman, and I'm, I'm now tempted to say to him, quote, the parties are now connected. Hi, Colonel. <laughs> hey, how are you, Michael? So what is that a line from? Uh, that is a uh, the, the preliminary. It's a, a line from my book. It was the way that uh, the phone call on January twenty, uh, July twenty fifth, two thousand nineteen, um, started. Are you sick and tired of talking about the intricacies of that call? Um, the call itself is frankly less interesting to me than the the you know some of the events around it. You know what was going on uh, with regards to administration. The call was just simply the culmination. Of a of a kind of a nefarious enterprise, a corrupt enterprise, but you know, the, the, my book is actually not about the call. It's about why I thought I needed, needed to report it and how I managed, you know, the, all the challenges surrounding this and, and how, when my background contributed to me doing the right thing in the right way. And something that I spoke about with regards to General Milley doing the right thing in the right way. Okay, but humor me for just a moment, because I've always been intrigued by the fact that you are in the Situation Room. Were you at the same table that President Obama was commanding the, uh, you know, the the raid uh, at Abbottabad? Because I always was led to believe that that was the smaller of the two rooms. And from your book, I get the impression that's the room you were in as well. That's exactly right. That was, I was in the smaller of two rooms, uh, sitting, I guess, uh, you know, what would have been catty corner to where uh, President, uh, where, where actually Secretary of State uh, Clinton was sitting, if you recall that picture. Yep, you, know, you had at the head of the table. Sure. Yeah, you, yeah, you had, uh, um, you know, President Obama, Secretary Clinton, and then I was sitting right at that corner over there. And, and but I had sat in the same seat that uh, the president had sat in on multiple occasions, which is a pretty awesome place to be he he knew you were listening or that others were listening right uh i frankly don't think so i don't believe that's uh i'd like to say now that the president knew no more on his last day in office than he knew on his first day in office um he he was not a learning personality so i don't believe he actually knew that there were you know other people on the phone call necessarily okay a naive question does a president mm-hmm. have the ability to call another world leader with no one listening? Uh, it's. I don't think it, it, it ever 
really happens. It's possible it's happened, and I, I'm, I'm not. I mean, it's quite possible it's happened, and I'm not aware of it because obviously, phone calls. These phone calls occur, you know, on a daily basis, pretty much. But there's always somebody listening. For hmm. one thing, there are these transcripts. Uh, they're not kind of a full transcript, like a recording. Uh, the White House stopped recording these phone calls after Nixon and the uh, uh, Watergate tapes. Right. But there is a transcript that uh, um, a contemporaneous, a comp- contemporaneous set of notes that is taken uh, for these phone calls, and then in this same, uh, then it's you know screened by folks like myself to make sure. Uh, because it's not, you know, recorded that it's accurate. Uh, those notes that are being taken down by, you know, technical staff are, are accurate. So if, uh, if, so I, if I'm the president, hard pre- to imagine. If yeah. I'm the president, it's not like I say, you know what, I feel like saying hello to my buddy uh, Boris. Hey, get me Boris Johnson on line three, and yeah. we can just have well, a private you know, chat. What's interesting about Trump is that there was reporting uh, at various points that he had his own unsecure cell phones, uh, you know, around him in the Oval Office. Right. And would do these types of things. And that had raised concerns uh, on multiple occasions that he was talking to people, uh, you know, uh, on official business, on unsecure phone calls. Uh, Eventually, I think uh, he was counseled against doing that. And uh, all of the, as, as time wore on, all the official calls, I think, made it into the, you know, into the, through the official White House communications lines and so forth. And, and, you know, they're, documented so uh, and uh, yeah. you you land here christmas day 1979 at the age of four uh that's right let's see did i i i guess i had just uh turned four uh in the preceding june yes that's right uh i mean it's a classic american story right which is a large part of of your memoir and the narrative in, including having to explain to your father why he was wrong on this critical issue that brought you to the limelight it's in, uh, it's pretty awesome. If I take a step back and take myself out of it, it's a pretty awesome story of, you know, someone someone landing in the United States with with really nothing, uh, you know, having uh, not even speaking the language, and then landing in the White House decades later, uh, and being in a position to not only just advance U.S. national security interests but make a difference in terms of uh, protecting this country when the president abuses uh, his office. It's pretty amazing uh, that my twin brother and I in particular, uh, Eugene also was in the White House with me, uh, that we landed in that position. Uh, I don't know. It's, a, it's like a Hollywood, uh, something that you would see in Hollywood. Eugene was the top ethics official for the for the NSC and to whom you said, quote, if what I just heard becomes public, the president will be impeached. That's right. Yeah. It's uh, he it's it was a phenomenal opportunity for both of us to kind of serve in in the same office and basically the same uh, organization. We had never experienced anything like that. You know, preceding, we were in the Pentagon together, but he was on the far side of the building on Army staff. I was on the chairman's staff. And uh, our military careers took us in separate directions where we'd see each other a couple times, a couple, three times a year. And we always were super close. But now we, we shared a hallway, and I literally would walk across from my door to his door and, and uh, you know, be able to talk to him and, consult with him if I needed to and so forth. It was, it was amazing. What's the moral of the story if Trump survived that impeachment and the two of you were kind of frog-marched out of the White House on national TV? It's, uh, I think the story is, is bigger than that. It's a story of somebody uh, doing, you know, an individual, one man, trying to do the right thing, and that ultimately leading to the impeachment of, of Donald Trump. And while uh, 
our our political class failed us. The president wasn't held accountable by the, by the Senate. It chipped away at this idea of uh, good governance by the Trump administration and ultimately contributed to his uh, removal from office, him being voted out and uh, President Biden being voted in. I think in a lot of ways uh, we need to hold our political class account- accountable for falling short, but the American people are the heroes in protecting this country you know, from another four years of Trump. Did you think you would get so much attention this week when you weighed in on General Milley? I did not. Uh, I mean, I I know that uh, I've, I'm starting to come, become accustomed a little bit to, uh, you know, uh, my tweets making news, uh, and they're not ill considered. I mean, I'm I'm pretty darn thoughtful as I, I try to always be, uh, because I know it garners attention. But I didn't really think it was going to be like this. But uh, in hindsight, it kind of makes sense. You know, the right has something to latch onto as I'm some, uh, perceived as a hero of the left. And, you know, and uh, like, I think by itself, the right wouldn't have gained any traction on this. But uh, weighing in on my concerns with regards to Gen- General Milley's behavior uh, added to, um, you know, added to uh, maybe a little bit more scrutiny of, of uh, General Milley's behavior over the past Yeah, years. I think you're right. I think there was a tendency for everybody to immediately suit up in their usual partisan armor in this case, uh, you know, if it's good for Trump, then I'm going this way. If it's bad for Trump, then I'm going that way. But all of a sudden, then, when Colonel Vindman weighs in and says, if this is true, General Milley must resign, all of a sudden people say, oh, wait a minute. Maybe there's something here that we really do need to scrutinize. By the way, I, I think there's no there's no question as to the authenticity of it where Milley had a statement released on his behalf and did not deny that critical issue of did he call General Lee and say, if we're going to attack, I'm going to call you ahead of time? Well, you know what? I'll tell you, uh, Michael, my concerns, it's funny that the headlines are like about the China call, but I have no concerns about the China call. And the reason is because I've been on a dozen of these types of phone calls. I was the chairman's advisor for Russia, and he would call his Russian counterpart fairly regularly, both in crisis when cruise missiles are flying. I, I talk about this in the book. And just normal uh, deconfliction calls, just making sure, you know, the relationship was on track. And there would be dozens of people, well, not dozens, there would be, you know, half a dozen, maybe more people in the room. And then the reports, these would be well-coordinated with State Department. They would go up the chain to uh, Office of Secretary of Defense. That's not what I was concerned about. Of course, if there's anything to this report about Chairman Milley, warning, uh, you know, his, his Chinese counterpart about uh, uh, imminent strikes, that's that's more than troubling. That's, you know, that that is a whole different category. But I don't I don't buy it. It just doesn't make sense. Chairman Milley is with even with all his faults, faults he's, he's an American patriot. He's not that kind okay, of person. So let me ask. Let me ask this question. You're telling me that you don't find troublesome if Milley said to Lee, if we're going to attack I'm going to call you ahead of time. It's not going to be a surprise. That, to me, has been the the part that I've highlighted and underscored. Then what is it that troubles you? Sure, sure. So let me just be crystal clear about this. The phone calls don't bother me. If he said something like that, of course, that's enormously troublesome. I just don't buy it. It makes no sense that the chairman of the joint, I would have to, like, have ironclad you know, uh, uh, something ironclad that suggests that he actually said that to his Chinese counterpart. I don't believe that the chairman who served decades and decades in military in the military trying to, you know, do, uh, advance, uh, protect the nation would do that. 
That's more along the lines of a treason. I just don't buy that the, par- that the chairman would do that. What I find troubling is that the chairman on multiple occasions now, we've heard this from Carol Leonig, from Susan uh, Glasser, we've heard this from Bob Woodward, had extremely deep concerns about wh- what the president, uh, President Trump was doing. And it never went on, on the record when it probably made a difference, when it would have absolutely made a difference. You know, he could have resigned after January 6th and said, I added his voice to the other resignations from cabinet officials, said, you know, we were unable to effectively respond with National Guard because uh, the White House was impeding us. Uh, I fear for this nation. There's a Reichstag moment. All the things that he said behind the scenes that come out months later when we're no longer in crisis. And he basically uh, instead what he chose to do was he chose to insert himself in into a uh, and, and seek to subvert kind of the chain of command, undo or counter, you know, the good order and discipline, the the civil military relations where you have civilian oversight. That's what bothers me, is that he's harmed civil military relations, and this isn't the first time. Furthermore, this is now a chairman that has become a a lightning rod. He's become a third rail for both the left and the right. If you recall, there was an enormous criticism of him uh, after the um, the 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 uh, Lafayette Square um, protesters were cleared and he mar- was paraded out by uh, by Trump, he apologized for that. But subsequent to to that, there was criticism about January sixth and, and the lethargic response by the Department of Defense. He was criticized by the right also, you know, as a deep stater because he's leading a woke military. He's a he's a gar- he's a third rail and. Frankly, the military doesn't need that. We have a apolitical military that has uh, that has enjoyed uh, support from all Americans, and now we have somebody that's probably about as controversial as we've had in decades. When there are far, far more, uh, there are as competent people, uh, as um, able to do the job. And I think the right thing to do would be to step aside and, and uh, let the military return to more kind of norms-based uh, behavior uh, and not be a lightning rod Colonel, for Colonel, to your, to your incredulity that he really said these things, like this is right in your wheelhouse. As I read, I, I actually physically have a copy of this book, and I read mm-hmm. the three pages aloud yesterday on radio that it's, I think, chapter 26. I don't have it within arm's distance right now. To lay mm-hmm. out for my audience, here's exactly what they say in the book. What struck me is these are quotes, quotes that to me imply there's a transcript. There is, now, mm-hmm. so let me ask you, do you think for a call between a General Milley and a General Lee, there would typically be a transcript? Because if so, I think somebody no. leaked it. No, I don't think so. You don't? There, I, my experience, I don't think there's a transcript. Hmm. Well, then I that think would... what you do is you, yeah. had no, you have note takers for, for these types of things. I see. Well, okay, yeah. one, one last thought on this. In the statement that was released on Wednesday by the, quote, Office of the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Public Affairs, don't you think they would have at least denied that line that he said to Lee, we're going to warn you before we attack? I, you know, I, would, I actually was puzzled uh, of that myself. I saw that as confirmation of, uh, you know, various elements in, in Bob Woodward's reporting. Uh, what I think is important is that he's called to testify at the end of this month in front of the um, I, I, oh yeah I September twenty eighth yep yeah and, and uh, he has to uh, answer for this and frankly if his answers are not satisfactory he should resign 
or he should he should be removed from the position. Uh, you know, he is he is again uh, not doing any service to the military, uh, to the Department of Defense uh, by serving in that capacity and continuing to be a lightning rod. Got he it. Could, he could have his peace afterwards. He could uh, say his peace afterwards. How is Alexander Vinman today? How are you doing? What are you doing? Uh, I'm I'm doing okay. I mean, I'm still trying to get my bearings. Uh, something that I, I talk about in my book quite a bit, like navigating, getting my bearings. Uh, I don't know exactly what I want to do in the long run, but I've invested into some pretty awesome activities. I'm working on my doctorate in inter- international affairs from Johns Hopkins. I've been on two research trips to Ukraine uh, within the past month, within the past 30 days, and uh, I'm writing about the impact of Ukraine. Uh, the impact of Ukrainian uh, international, I'm sorry, let me try that again. I'm writing about the impact of Ukraine on U.S. national security. And I've interviewed key leaders, former presidents, ministers of foreign affairs there. I'm going to be doing the same thing on the U.S. side. And it's going to make for a pretty uh, pretty fast, fascinating account of the relationship between uh, uh, this country and that region. Uh, I'm on the board of a, n- a non-governmental organization advocating for uh, democratic renewal. It's the Renew Democracy Initiative. Uh, it's bipartisan and trying to, to, to continue to uh, make this country strong, um, continue public service out of uniform. I'm uh, at Lawfare as a uh, fellow. I have a book that made it to number two on New York Times. So I've, I've basically, you know, I guess practiced what I preached in a way. I had the confidence to, to recognize that I was, able, was going to be able to land on my feet somehow and figure out what I'd be able to do ultimately. I'm still trying to figure out exactly what it will be. But in the meantime, um, I'm doing, I'm contributing. I'm trying to do uh, good work. Final question. Are we Carpatho-Rusin blood brothers? Uh, it's possible. Uh, what, do you recall where your family hails from? So it's a village in modern-day Poland called Swersova Ruska. Hmm. It's possible. Uh, so I think my family was probably a little bit further east of that in the Pala settlement. Of course, we both know that Galicia, uh, you know, uh, crossed into what is modern day Poland. I, I, uh, it's possible our ancestors uh, bumped into each other and we, we uh, farmed fields together. How about that? Well, in the in the census records for the United States in the 20s and 30s and 40s, when my great grandparents were asked, where are you from? mostly they would say Galicia. That's what they yeah. would say. That's right. Uh, I think uh, it's um, it's interesting how many people hail from that part of the world. We have a very large community here in the United States uh, of, of refugees, both from that period of time after uh, after 1917 and the, the uh, Communist Revolution. And uh, my family came over, you know, some 80, actually not, no, it was 60 years later. It's kind of fu- funny. Um, and now we've all, uh, now we're all part of the American project. That's why, you know, when I was coming in from the airport just a couple weeks ago, uh, and I saw the Afghans, uh, coming in, I was, it made my heart smile to recognize that their strength is being added to our strength as Americans and, uh, that they're going to make this country stronger. Amen to that. The book is called Here. Right Matters, an American story. That was a pleasure. Alexander Vinman, I wish you good things. Thank you. Appreciate it, Michael. Thank you. Boy, that was interesting, wasn't it? Yeah, I don't know what it says about me, but that was really serious conversation about really serious international and national security issues. And yet, my takeaway is that you are indeed Carpatho-Russian blood brother. Rusin. Rusin. 
Rusin, Rusin blood we are, brothers. We are Carpatho Rusin blood brothers. I mean, you clearly are. That's <laughs> you know, my takeaway. Like, I like the way. I like the way he just rolled with the question he and even, answered it. He did not even. It's, it's almost like he expected it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You guys I'm absolutely sure waved at me. each other. Yeah. No question. <laughs> That was amazing. Hear more of Michael Smirconish on Sirius XM's POTUS, Channel 124. Live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east or anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Michael Smirconish for Independent Minds. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? (laughs) Yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.